Hello everyone, it's Derek, Brother Knox from Beyond the Block. This week it is just me again. I think what's happening is James realizes that if he doesn't record with me, he doesn't have to hear any of my jokes. So that's probably what's the uh, what the reason is behind this. I just want to say happy uh, Women's History Month to everyone. It is important to do women's history all year long, but without any particular emphasis, we may not ever get to it unless there's a, a specific a specific and deliberate intention to lift up the voices and stories and narratives of women in our history, both broadly and in church history. So let's keep that in mind as we journey through some of the stories of women in the New Testament. And there are the, the stories of women in the New Testament are much more prominent than culturally we may realize. Uh, women are much more central in the narratives than we're led to think. Um, they're much more central than women's narratives in the Book of Mormon, for example. So let's just keep that in mind as we go through these stories. So this week we are doing Matthew's Matthew, we've got four chapters, there's a lot to cover, and I'm not even going to get to everything. But we're covering Matthew chapters 9 and 10, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 9. And there, there's a whole bunch of separate different things. So here in the Gospels, we've got a, a lot of isolated chunks. Um, although that when, when they're put together, they're not so much isolated, there's some themes and patterns. But you've just got many, many individual narratives like when you look at uh, Luke 9, if you look at section headings in a Bible that has section headings, you've, uh, you've got at least 13 different section headings there. Anyway, so let's go back and talk uh, briefly about the healing of the paralytic in Matthew 9. Now, we've... Uh, We've have not uh, we we have covered some of these themes before in other gospels, but here we've got Jesus seeing a people bringing to him a paralytic on a stretcher, and he says, "Your sins are forgiven." That is so interesting because he engages with people that annoys and threatens those with authority. Right? The experts in the law said to themselves, "This man is blaspheming." And uh, he defends his authority to, 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 to forgive sins. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, stand up, take up your stretcher, and go home. And he stood up and went home. So I think this is really interesting. If you look at Luke's concluding sentence here, when the crowd saw this, they were afraid and honored God who had given such authority to men. What's interesting is Jesus's authority does not come through any lineage. It does not come through any ordination. It does not come through any structural or institutional verification or authority. He just comes up on his own and he says, look, I'm going to do it anyway. I think that is a model of how true, valid authority works. Um, anyway, so I could, I could talk more on and on about this, but I, let's just focus on how Jesus does or does not balance this alleged 
contradiction between love for God and love for neighbor. Some people will try to use love for God as an excuse to hurt their neighbor. And like, that doesn't make any sense. We've talked about this before, but here we've got a case where Jesus's first priority is to serve the needs of the neighbor, the spiritual and physical and temporal needs of the neighbor here, who um, presumably in this case wants to be healed. Um, and we, we should, I should just pause and, and so, the disability community is diverse on this, and we've talked about this before. Not everyone wants to be healed or wants to be healed in a particular way. There's many are like, I'm fine the way I am with this particular thing. Uh, let's let's just change the world to make to make this normal variation uh, no longer a disability. So uh, there there are, there's that to name. But let's go back and talk about this. This man is blaspheming. Look at how Jesus annoys the leaders. I mean, like, if we're not annoying the leaders of God's people, we're probably not being very Christ-like. Let me just say that. Then there's the call of Matthew or Levi. Uh, and part of this is why the Pharisees... Now, this is another way of annoying people, uh, annoying other people and, and, and threatening them and making them uncomfortable with this new thing. The Pharisees saw this, uh, and uh, this is Jesus having a meal in Matthew's house, and sinners and tax collectors came and ate with Jesus. And the Pharisees saw this, and they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This statement, I want mercy and not sacrifice, is from Hosea 6, verse 6. So here's another example where prioritizing God's law, right, over love, right, or trying to balance law and love, trying to balance mercy and justice, all these fake binaries that people are trying to use to hurt the LGBT community, Jesus doesn't doesn't do that. In fact, he does definitely prioritize character over ordinances. Character over ordinances. Let me say that again. He's prior prioritizing the internals rather than the externals. Many people think that our mortal world is like a big game of Pokemon Go, except instead of collecting those creatures, you're supposed to collect those ordinances. You got to collect them all, collect all the ordinances, and then that's really what mortality is about, is collecting the ordinances. I'm here to tell you that that is a flawed understanding. You are wasting an entire lifetime, an entire lifetime of growth and knowledge and learning and development and relationship building. The ordinances for a single person can be done in a couple of hours in this life or in the next, right? It's not about the ordinances. It is not about the ordinances. Those can point towards Jesus, yes. But if you think the whole point of coming to earth is to make and keep covenants, and then you narrowly interpret that to mean just those ordinances, I mean, like, we've got a big problem here. Jesus says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Remember, sacrifice, he's not talking about, oh, you need to make a sacrifice in your life to, to, like, care for your kids or something. He's talking about the temple sacrifices, which are ordinances. Let's go back. People say, well, ordinances can't change. Of course, ordinances can change. Look at circumcision. Look at animal sacrifice. Those changed, right? Those were ordinances 
um, and they changed. The endowment it did not exist before the 19th century, right? That's new. That changed, right? We should be prepared for change. We should not be uh, captivated by this black and white, all or nothing, unchanging thinking when we've got a living relationship with the living God with ongoing revelation. So now let me just talk a little bit more about this Hosea 6 because he's expecting the Pharisees to understand this and know this. And let me just read the whole verse, and this is from the English Standard Version. Hosea 6, verse 6, For I desire love and not... Oh, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So we see with this parallelism synonymous, you've got basically the same thing, the point made twice. Chesed rather than sacrifice. Chesed is the covenant loyalty that is expected um, between, between people who have made a covenant of love with one another. And that gets translated as mercy or steadfast love here. And that's what God wants. God does not want checklists. God does not want ordinances. God does not want sacrifice. God does not want burnt offerings. And I need to put an asterisk on there and say, it's not that God doesn't absolutely want them. He wants them if your heart's in the right place and the sacrifices are in the right place, right? If your heart's in the right place, the priority, and the ordinances are in the right place, in their limited place, pointing towards God, pointing towards Christ, then God's okay with them. Let me just quote from Psalm 51, verses 16 through 19. Certainly, you do not want a sacrifice, or else I would offer it. You do not desire a burnt sacrifice. The sacrifice God desires is a humble spirit. O God, a humble and repentant heart you will not reject. Because you favor Zion, do what is good for her. Fortify the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will accept the proper sacrifices, burnt sacrifices and whole offerings. Then bulls will be sacrificed on your altar. So what this is saying here is, uh, uh, this is so good I want to quote it a whole, all over again, but um, I don't have time to do that. God does not want these ordinances. Certainly you do not want a sacrifice or else I would offer it. You do not desire burnt sacrifice. The sacrifice God desires is a humble spirit. The way I would take that now is the ordinance God desires now is social justice. The ordinance that God desires now is loving kindness, peace, the fruits of the spirit, right? Checking off these little ordinances like it's a Pokemon Go, like that's the whole point of life is to get these magic spells in place so that you can see grandma again. That is a, a gross oversimplification of the richness, beauty, and depth of the gospel. And so much of our missionary work hinges on, okay, I've got the magic spells for you to see grandma again and for you to be with your spouse again. Like that's not really like you can say that in a paragraph we've got pages and pages and pages of teaching in the bible to cover right now there's a piece of those things that's in our in our textual tradition but where's the priority so people are running off getting their ordinances and then treating each other horribly the hebrew prophets would have something to say about that jesus would have something to say about that so i have something to say about that we need to stop persecuting and discriminating 
based on race, based on gender, based on gender identity, based on disability, based on uh, uh, orientation. Like, we need to stop the discrimination. God desires mercy, chesed, and not the ordinances, the sacrifice. Well, anyway, um, I've probably said enough about that for right now, but we really need to think about what's the priority because you can get stuff right in, in isolation, but if you don't get the priorities right, you don't get anything right. And we see this again in 1 Corinthians 13. Right? You can have all the faith. You can have all the revelation. You can have all the prophetic gift. But if you don't have love, you don't get any credit for what you did. You can even be a martyr for Christ. You can give your body over. But if you don't have love, you don't get any credit. And so I look at the leadership of the church and I'm like, where's the love? Show me the love. Right? It's kind of like, I don't know. I remember one of the first commercials that I ever saw must have been in the early 1980s. Where's the beef with Wendy's? I don't know if people are old enough to know that. But show me the, uh, I was about to say show me the money from Jerry Maguire, but show me the love. And this isn't just the word love. We need the self-sacrificial love of Christ who divested himself of his own privilege to make room for others, who cared more about serving his neighbor than his own reputation, his own standing within the institution. He threw away any standing he ever had, by the way, which he never had any. Right, He never earned any standing within the structural system. And I probably will never earn uh, standing within the structural system, but I can be a prophetic voice saying, we need to get back to what Jesus is saying. Um, anyway, let's return back to Matthew. There's so much to talk about. Fasting, we've, we've already talked about. Um, we will have... Uh, We'll get to that. We'll get to more of these things later. Um, Jesus healing two blind men. Uh, we'll get that in another gospel. Uh, we'll get some of these other things. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10. Let's talk about the uh, the 12 apostles, right? We've talked a little bit more about how the, po- the apostles, um, the track record of apostles in the latter-day dispensation is not that good, right? Uh, more than 10% of them have apostatized since 1835. Just because you're an apostle doesn't mean you're above the law. Why don't we have better checks and balances? Anyway, if you, when you look at through these apostles' names, uh, one of the things is you've got some of them that, that have Greek names. And Galilee was a bilingual area at this time. You had uh, a large Greek-speaking presence as well. And so numerous, uh, especially if you're going to do any trade or business, you probably knew Greek as well. And so Jesus may have taught some of his stuff in Greek. Um, he may, uh, many of these apostles could have grown up also knowing Greek as well. It's unclear, but I just wanted to put that out there because some of Jesus's teachings, some of his wordplay hinges upon particular Greek words. And it, it's difficult to know uh, what originally was taught in Aramaic versus what originally was taught in Greek. And then uh, all of it was ended up translated into Greek into the New Testament. But I wanted to talk about these sending out the 12 apostles because this is the first, this is the temporary first sending out of the 12. 
And I want to talk a little bit about relationships because God works through relationships. God is love. God is a loving relationship between Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother and and uh, the Son of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, right? So God is eternal love, eternal relationships. And so I think when God gets a foothold on earth, it's about relationships as well. So God theoretically could light up the sky with the words and, or a voice and tell everyone, and just tell everyone the gospel from the sky and everyone would believe it, right? People might not have, uh, that may impact people's agency. People may not feel like they have a choice, but that's not what Jesus, that's not what God has done. God has not just boomed it over the loudspeaker of the heavens so that everyone gets it directly from God. What happens is God sends people and God uses messengers and relationships. Building relationships is how this works for God to get a foothold of God's reign on earth. In many ways, the gospel is like a multi-level marketing scam, right? You get your friend and then your friend gets your friend and you get, rather than like like a traditional marketing uh, that you just have an advertisement that goes out to everybody, you get one-on-one people and use those relationships and leverage those relationships. Oh, you know, maybe multi-level marketing is, is Satan's counterfeit of the gospel. <laughs> maybe that's what I'm going to say. Uh, I'm not, I'm just kind of joking. I'm not against all multi-level marketing. There's some good products that um, if you, if you know what you're doing and, and you believe in the product and, uh, and you're not uh, deceived into thinking this is some get-rich-quick scheme. Um, most people who go into multi-level marketing for the money, it there's you don't get the money, right? Very, very, very rarely is able to someone someone able to advance up the pyramid in order to to get very far. Now some do, but most don't. So if you have a product and you're going to be distributing it anyway and you're going to use it anyway, whatever, right? But if you're going in here to get a lot of money that may or may not happen. But anyway, let's go back to this, the 12 apostles. So Jesus sends out the 12 apostles in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15. And we've got something slightly concerning in the fifth verse. Jesus sends out the 12, instructing them as follows, Do not go to Gentile regions and do not enter into any Samaritan town. Go instead to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Close quote. This is Matthew 5 and 6. Let's talk about that for just a second. In this temporary mission, uh, we're going only to the Gentile. Uh, we're, no go- we're not going to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Now, elsewhere, even in the Gospel of Matthew, you've got pro-Gentile uh, and pro-Samaritan. Uh, throughout the Gospels, you have pro-Gentile and pro-Samaritan statements and actions of Jesus. So how do we make sense of this? So... I don't want to completely, uh, like, apologetically get rid of the problem here because there is, this still should be somewhat concerning, right? Because it seems that Jesus is advocating discrimination. He's advocating uh, some delay for that some people have to wait just purely based on their ethnicity or their lineage. And I'm like, there's a problem there because I fundamentally believe in the equality of all people. And so this is going to rub those of us who firmly believe in the equality of all people, which to me, let's go back and talk about this. I think when we've got contradictory 
uh, or apparently contradictory things in the scriptures, which, where do we go with, right? Because we've got all are alike unto God. We've got there is no Jew. There, um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, right, in Galatians 3.28. So what do we do with these? We've got some texts that have this seeming uh, this seeming discrimination and then others that actually uh, talk about equality. And so I go with the equality ones and I say, well, we should use the clear texts to understand the, the, the more challenging ones rather than fixating on this and using it as a, dis- as a justification for segregation or a justification for the priesthood and temple discrimination against our siblings of African descent, right? Some people have used this that way. I'm like, no. So we need to be careful how we use that. But let's talk about this. I think part of it comes down to this is a temporary mission, and it's done just by 12 people in in uh in twos we've only got six we've only got six companionships going out and um well now i wait is he uh and it doesn't it's not even explicit that they're going in twos in this text we get that elsewhere but here they might even been in larger groups so we've got less than we've only got a handful of groups going around um, and this is time sensitive. This mission needs to be completed before um, before Jesus finishes his ministry on earth, right? So we've got these relationships, this urgency of getting to all of the uh, all of the towns of Israel. And what does that mean? And here's my partial analogy. It's kind of like if missionaries are going down a street and they're knocking on doors, they're gonna have to knock on one door before the other. They're going to have to walk down one street one day and another street another day, and they may have to make an arbitrary choice as to what one they're going to go first because they can't do them all first. Not everyone can be first if you're doing it through relationships one-on-one. So necessarily, you have to uh, choose. Maybe choose arbitrarily. You need a foothold here first. You need to knock on one door first. And I think in some ways, the choice of Israel as God's foothold for God's reign on earth, um, it's kind of like that. The whole point was not to choose Israel to, to then be exclusive, but to choose Israel to be a light to everyone else. So that's where you get the equality comes back in. You start somewhere, but you don't stay there. You end up as soon as possible getting giving it to everyone and letting Israel be a foothold. So Jesus is a, is a single person a uh, one individual who ends up being this foothold within Israel and then Israel being a foothold within the rest of the world. A place to start building these relationships and branching out. And it's always been that Israel was supposed to bless everyone else, that this is God's way of blessing the whole world. We see this back in the, in the Genesis, 12 problem, uh, Genesis 12 blessing of Abraham. I'm just rambling. I'm probably uh, wasting a lot of time about this. But this is important enough to say, well, what do we do with this? And now let's talk about this knocking on doors example, because there is a catch to this. The catch is, okay, yes, logistically, you have to choose one first over the other. You just have to. But here's where it's not discrimination, is what happens when someone runs from the second house? Like I'm knocking on the doors of house number one, and someone three doors down comes up to me, and I'm a missionary, and says, hey, teach me. I want the gospel too. What do I do? Do I say, oh, I'm principally committed to going to this house first because we've got to start somewhere. 
right? And then I reject that person. That's when choosing one first over the other becomes discrimination is when an eager person from the third house gets rejected, right? As soon as someone comes in and says, look, I want it here now, I'm ready now, then you throw out your order that you planned and then you serve the person. If you're committed to doing that, then it's not discriminatory. Yes, you have to start knocking on one door first, but if you are open to anyone and you don't turn anyone away, then it's not discrimination, I don't think, right? Um, so let's, there's some like real-world examples of this. This week when we have the Mark 5 uh, story of the Jairus' daughter. So here's what happens. This is exactly what happens. Uh, Jairus comes up to Jesus saying, heal my daughter. And then he's on the way, and then this woman with a flow of blood comes up. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this other thing first. You're going to have to wait. He, you have this, what we call Mark and Sandwich, actually, where this one woman's story is so important that it interrupts. And I think it's important where we are socially and on the margins. Here we have a named male, Jairus, uh, versus an unnamed woman, right? So we can see also Jairus is the a leader, a synagogue leader, right? Someone central to the community, someone well-respected, someone on the inside. This woman, due to her flow of blood, has been isolated for 12 years from the community, economically, socially, religiously, ritually isolated, right? So where, what does Jesus prioritize? He's, he pauses Jairus and the daughter, not forever, but temporarily, and attends to the woman in need because she comes up, right? And, and it's not even so much that he attends to the woman in need because she's the one that takes the initiative, right? Um, and we'll get to that when we get to Mark 5. But the way it's presented in Mark is that Mark puts attention on this woman he could have delayed and told the story afterward. He could have like rounded out uh, the story of Jairus and his daughter and then got to, oh, by the way, there's this happened. But because it happened on the way, this shows that Jesus is in breaking into the world with love and peace and justice and wholeness and healing doesn't have any boundaries. If you run up to him, he will... Uh, he will he will accommodate you. So this is one of those literal knocking on door situations where if someone else I'm knocking on one door, but someone from another house comes up, that person gets attention. And we have so this literally happens in the Mark Five uh, sandwich. And then this also happens figuratively in the Mark Seven and Matthew Fifteen story of the Syrophoenician Cypher, Cypher woman, which we'll get the week after Easter. But in that and I'll talk about that later. So I'm not going to talk about it now. But it is one of my most this, to me, is one of the most defining narratives of what faith is. Faith is holding Jesus accountable to Jesus' promises and Jesus' character. And this is a good contrast to, notice it's also in Matthew. So Matthew has in Matthew 10, you know, don't go to the, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles. But when a Syrophoenician woman, when a Gentile woman comes in, a Canaanite woman, according to Matthew, comes in, Jesus is blown over by by her faith and grants her request, even though he says it's not right to take. Well, I shouldn't be talking about this too much. 
But anyway, my point is, this is another example of it's not discriminatory to start somewhere as long as you're open to everyone who comes by and you and you you're you're starting somewhere for the purposes of blessing everybody, I think. I think that's kind of what what I what I pick up on. I hope I'm not too apologetically uh defending discrimination because I would hopefully never never be guilty of doing that. But I'm trying to make sense of what is it what is Matthew in this limited temporary mission while Jesus is still here. What's he doing? I think he is establishing a foothold so that um, this can eventually bless the entire world. And that's where Matthew ends it, of course. Matthew 28. Go into all nations. Right? Go uh, make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them. Uh, but anyway, so I need to stop talking about that. And I need, there's, there's a big thing here. There's a whole bunch to talk about about persecution. And this missionary discourse in Matthew 10. Because so much of it is misconstrued. A lot of people will say, well, Jesus was a, you know, Jesus, you know, people will use these principles to say, look, I'm not supposed to love my my family more than God. So I'm going to hurt my LGBT family in the name of God to show my love for God. That is how some people read some of this stuff, right? Because Jesus's message does bring division between families. And people say, oh, I'm going to choose choose God over over my LGBTQ loved one. But first of all, that's not choosing God because God never told people to hurt their LGBT loved ones. There is not, no, no, there's, there's nothing. Um, uh, well, anyway, let's talk about this. If you look at verse 1016 in Matthew, I'm sending you out like sheep surrounded by wolves so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves to me this is a very important uh, piece of wisdom for those of us on the underside how do we navigate a patriarchal system that is homophobic and racist and sexist and completely hierarchical well we've got to be um wise as serpents we've got to be clever we've got to navigate it we've got to navigate it skillfully but we also have to be innocent as doves we have to navigate this system knowing that it's stacked against us, but we have to do it in a way that's clever and creative and um, self-reliant, uh, right? We have to be simultaneously as wise as serpents and innocent as doves when we deal with leaders who have all this power. Anyway. Um, at some point, I should talk about James C. Scott, who's an anthropologist who, t who did fieldwork among uh, oppressed peoples and what are their strategies of hope and liberation and how do they – or strategies of survival. And the, the short version is there's a middle path between open rebellion and complete subservience. There's a middle path. And people forget that and think Jesus is teaching complete subservience and giving in to the oppression no he's not he resists but he resists nonviolently and strategically and powerfully and creatively working within the system as it exists to transcend the system and eventually undermine the system um anyway let's look at this i uh, peace uh, let's look at this peace thing because we have to balance this with the blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew 5. So Matthew intentionally puts these both in here. Um, so we should use the, the, the clear to understand the more difficult. 
yes, I support being a peacemaker, if, um, especially if that's all at all possible. But let's look at what it says in 1034. In context, by the way, do not think that I have come to bring, bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, some people are going to use this out of context and, and say, well, Jesus supports violence because he says he comes to bring a sword. Now, I have to tell you, there's a problem, um, a well-known challenge when you're reading Greek, because in the Koine period of Greek, uh, purpose clauses and result clauses ended up um, really overlapping the forms and the and the meaning. So you have to use the contents it the context to decide is this the purpose or is this the result because it may be an unintended result. Maybe an unintended result. If I had more time I could give you more examples of result clauses in in Greek. But here I think this is more so the result even though it's foreseen um but it's not the purpose of coming is to bring the sword. First of all, it's not even a literal sword. Not even a literal sword. Let's look at Matthew, with even within the same gospel, to understand, to let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is what Matthew 26, 52 says. Then Jesus said to him, which is Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who take hold of the sword die by the sword. That's Jesus' policy on a literal sword. In this case... Um, the meaning is clarified by the Lucan parallel. The Lucan parallel in Luke 12, verses 51 to 52 says, Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Okay, so where where Matthew has the word sword, Luke more helpfully has the word division. And let's talk about what this sword, in context, it's not about you crusading and you hurting people in the name of Christ. The sword that Jesus brings is not in the hand of the Christians. Let me say that again. The sword that Jesus brings is not in the hand of the Christians. It's in the hand of those who would kill the Christians. That's the sword that is brought about by Jesus's uh, breaking into the world with this message. So look at this. It says, 1035, for I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the enemies of his household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, pause. Let me pause there and say people are going to use that against the gays and say, well, I can't love my gay son more than I love Jesus. Now, first of all, no one's asking you to do that. That's not in context what happens. Read the next verse to figure out the context. And whoever does not take up his cross, that is, the, the tool of execution, not the tool of committing violence, but the tool of receiving violence, that is, being, allowing yourself to be crucified, allowing yourself to be executed, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life because of me will find it. This is really, really important. Because um, because people are using this against LGBTs, but in context, this division is is not okay. Let's talk about what it means to love father or mother or son or daughter more than Christ. Some people will interpret this me to mean is I need to hurt my my family member in order to show my love for Christ. But that's not in context what's happening. What's happening is actually kind of um, the reverse. That is, 
if you're in a position where you can escape being hurt by your relative by denying Christ, don't do that, right? Jesus isn't asking you to hurt people in his name. He's asking you not to um, be afraid to the point of denying him in order to de- to avoid being hurt by others. I don't know if that makes any sense, but the logic is is sort of backwards than the homophobes try to make it. Right? He says in verse 1028, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. It's not the Christians who are going around killing people. It is the Christians who are being killed here. Okay? Do not be afraid of them. Verse verse 26. Verse 21, brother will hand over brother to death and will father his child. That's not that's that's not the Christians, the followers of Jesus handing over people to death. It's people handing you over to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Look at verse 17. Beware of people because they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. So it's the the violence that Jesus is talking about isn't what we're supposed to do to others in the name of Christ. It's what others pe- will do to us because of our nonviolent, peaceful following of Christ. And we shouldn't avoid that. Uh, I mean, we should avoid it, but we shouldn't avoid it if it means denying Christ. That is what it means not to love father or mother more than me. That is, if my father or mother is going to kill me for being a Christian, I shouldn't deny Christ to save my life or to save my relationship with father or mother. So the logic is completely backwards from the way the homophobes are using this. Um, so basically, we are, we're not asked to kill for Christ, Right, we are asked not to be afraid of those who do kill, and that is completely different. Like this, cannot this this I have come to bring I have not come to bring priests but a sword is not at all about Jesus supporting violence. In context, it's about G- saying that we should be willing to receive violence if necessary, rather than deny Christ. That is the ultimate in nonviolence: is to be able to receive violence without retaliating. So that's what it means to to bring a sword. Um, anyway, so now let's go back into Mark 5, and let's talk about this man with a demon. So here we are in Gentile country, uh, and we've got this man with a demon. Let me turn over to uh, Mark chapter 5. So here's something interesting about this. Um, I'm assuming this story is well known, so I'm not going to to talk about, uh, to to go to read it all. But I just wanted to point out one detail: is the demon says to Jesus, "Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I implore you by God, do not torment me." Now, here's what's interesting: the demon is actually appealing to God and saying, I implore you by God. I think that is so interesting. Not everyone who invokes God's name is going to be trustworthy right here. The demons even invoke God's name, right? We need to think about this uh, when people invoke God's name. Now, what is Jesus' response to that? Jesus had a very, very clever way of replying to that, right? Jesus says, what is your name? That's it. Instead of uh, refuting or, or rebelling all this other stuff, 
Jesus simply says, what is your name? And I think that's a powerful way of diffusing the objections that the demon had. What's interesting about that is maybe I should start doing that. If homophobes in my ward come up and say the wrong thing to me, maybe I should just ask, what is your name? As a way of distracting them, as a way of diffusing them, as a way of changing the conversation. Even if I know their name, I'm gonna, they're going to say their, their homophobic stuff to me. And then I look at them straight in the eye and say, what is your name? Because maybe that will clue them into they're not acting authentically in, 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 with their identity as a redeemed child of God. Like, think about their name. Think about who you really are. Are you really saying that to me? Who are you? To, who, who is this in front of me saying, saying this, right? So I'm going to start saying to the homophobe, what is your name? And then that might shock them out of their, their rhythm and their pattern. Like, what do you mean? What do you, mean? you know my name. I'm like, what is your name? And then they're going to tell me their name. And I'm like, well, maybe I didn't recognize you based on the way you were acting. Um, anyway. The next time, another thing that I'm going to say, if someone says something straight supremacist to me, I'm going to say, I'm going to look at them and with curiosity and say, oh, what part of your soul did you have to kill in order to say something like that to me? Because then now it puts the focus on back on them and not on me, not on my reaction, but it now makes them very self-conscious about what it was that they just said. Anyway, now let's look at this. Verse 10 Legion, my name is Legion. Now, this is an anti, a likely anti-Roman cryptogram, right? This is a term, a Roman military term, and associating uh, evil with the Roman military is a very clever way of, of uh, that Mark is telling the story. But anyway, oh, we can also talk about militarism. Of course, I'm anti-militarism. But anyway, the demon begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the... Um, out of the region. But here's what the, the, the demons begged. They said, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits came out, went into the pigs, and then they rushed down into the lake, and they were all drowned, about 2,000 of the pigs. Now here's what I want to say is, people are like, people are like, oh, we can't talk to the queer community. We can't talk to... Uh, uh, you know, we, there's no negotiation. Like, the rules are the rules, and there's no nothing we can do, and the apostles tell us, like, we can't do anything, and they refuse to listen to us. They refuse to negotiate with us. They refuse to have a real vulnerable conversation with us. They refuse to be accountable. Now, here's something interesting about that. They have no excuse for that because, look, even Jesus was willing to negotiate with demons. He was willing to listen to them and consider their request and, in one case, grant it. So don't tell me that the apostles can't talk to the queers. If Jesus can talk to demons, now I realize that I am comparing the demons to the queers. But my point is a call the Homer argument, an argument from the lesser to the greater. That is, um, if even Jesus can talk to demons, which are far worse than the queers, and if even Jesus can grant their request and negotiate with them, how much more should this lesser challenge be granted? At least listening to the queers, listening to our requests, listening to our, um, our testimonies of who we are and that we're children of God too and, and that there's nothing different about our love. The leaders of this church refuse to sit down and negotiate with us 
The, the leaders of this church are treating my people worse than Jesus treated demons. Let me say that again. In the name of Christ, the leaders of this church are treating my people worse than Jesus treated demons. Anyway, let's let, let that sink let that sink in. Anyway, so um, then we'll, we've got this uh, Jairus's daughter uh, in the rest of Mark chapter five. So the synagogue ruler came up and says, my little daughter is near death. Come lay your hands on her. And so he he, he goes, and then this woman comes, um, and she, she'd suffered under the doctors, and then she came up and she kept saying to herself, if only I touch his clothes, I will be healed. And I think this is so interesting because here we don't, we're not even just getting a woman's thoughts. We're getting, or we're not even just getting a woman's words. We're getting her internal thoughts, which tells me that God cares about the internal thoughts of women. Right? They're, they're important enough to be centered in the narrative, to be centered in the text. Women shouldn't be silent. Women shouldn't be uh, unknown. Women's thoughts shouldn't be unknown. Um, if we should make room for, I shouldn't say make room for, cause it makes it sound like I have a, I have a, I control access, right? I, what, what men need to do in, in the church is to say, um, women are already here at the table. We need to listen to women. We need to respect women. We need to respect the leadership of women and not get in the way, uh, of what God is doing anyway. What's interesting is um, he turned around and says, who touched my clothes? And then uh, people re- you know, crit- don't understand saying, well, why, there's all these people. How, are you, how can you say who touched me? But then um, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I think it's so precious. Then the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her. So she knew it. When she could feel that the power, so Jesus felt power had gone out of him, and she had felt in her body. She knew inside. Here's another one of her internal thoughts. At once the bleeding stopped, and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. Here we have this woman's intuition, this woman's internal knowledge of how her body works, right? That's important. That is important. And I think um, we don't even, in our culture, we don't even trust women to know their own bodies, and I think that is really, uh, uh, really a, a really awful, awful thing. But anyway, let's talk about this. Uh, going back here, verse 35, and then we go back to uh, the synagogue ruler. Uh, while he was still speaking, people came from, the, from Jairus' house. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? But Jesus, paying no attention to what was said, told the synagogue ruler, do not be afraid, just believe. So he uh, here's what's interesting. They all laughed at him in verse 40. Because Jesus said the child is not dead but sleeping, and then people laughed at him. I, that, I really noticed that one time about how what it feels like to be a queer person telling my truth and then people laughing at me, people not taking me seriously, right? Jesus felt that. He said a truth that was quite counterintuitive, right? The child is not dead but sleeping. Something that would rock people's world, and then he doesn't get believed, and people made fun of him. But anyway, um, 
He takes her by the hand and says in Aramaic, Talithikum, which means little girl, get up. Uh, and I think that's interesting because here we have the exact words of Jesus, which he, in the um, on the occasion, said in Aramaic. We we rarely, we sometimes get Jesus' words in Aramaic transliterated into Greek letters in the Gospels. And here we get the exact words. And I think that's very important to get these exact words uh, on this occasion because <clears throat> there's this distinction between the ipsissima vox, the very voice, and the ipsissima verba, the very words, or the words themselves. And so in the Gospels, we do not often get the ipsissima verba. We get the ipsissima vox of Jesus. We get his voice, the gist, the translation, the, the meaning of what he says, but we, we don't often get the exact words. And I think a similar thing is true with Latter-day prophets, right? We don't get the exact words of God through the prophets. We get the voice, right? Kind of going back to DNC 138, it doesn't say whether by the words of my prophets or my own words, it's the same. It's the voice, right? And it's not everything that the apostles, uh, that, the, that the servants say is God's word. It's if God's word is given through the servants, then it's the same as if it would have been given by God directly. But that doesn't mean that everything the servants say is God's word. Anyway. Um, I should wrap up soon, but I need to talk about, uh, so the transfiguration, let's, we're, we're going to have a bunch of stuff in Luke 9 that I'm not going to get to, but we'll get this in other places. But the transfiguration in 9 verses 28 through 36, I just wanted to say that that's a coming out, to me it's a coming out narrative. It's where Jesus is sort of in drag in a way or putting on a new identity or putting an, on some new garb and appearing as his real self, appearing as his real self to people. That is coming out. That is where he is revealing his truest identity to his inner circle, which is exactly what queer people do all the time. Now let's talk about this. Um, who is the greatest? Luke 9 verses 46 through 48, because this should talk about how church leaders should uh, should behave and how we should treat church leaders. Now, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them might be the greatest, but Jesus discerned their innermost thoughts. But when Jesus discerned their innermost thoughts, he took a child, had him stand by his side, and said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the one who is least among you all is the one who is great." Close quote. In church culture, it's the one who's greatest among us who's great, right? The apostles, ooh, there's a visiting general authority. There's an area authority. There's a what, like, who cares? Who cares, right? I care about the last, the least, the lost, and the lowest. That's what I, that's what Jesus care about. That's what I, he prioritized. That's where um, on judgment day, we will be judged based on how we served the marginalized, not how we served those with, uh, how did we flatter the ego of, of leaders with power and control and access to billions of dollars? That's not the Jesus I know. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels literally says, the one who is least among you is the one who is great. Who's least in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? That's who's great. That's who's great. And let's talk about children in the ancient world. So children, no doubt, were loved by their parents, as we can see with Jairus' daughter and other 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 things. Um, 
but in general, children did not have um, really rights or social standing. They there was not this this sense of this uh, idealization of the innocence of children that we get in later um, in the in the past few centuries. But really, children were just kind of there. This whole children should be seen and not heard thing. So children did not have um, standing. So I think it's important that Jesus takes the child and says that's really what the kingdom of God is like. Um, anyway, so then we've got this travel narrative. And let's, talk, let's wrap this up by talking about nonviolence again. Uh, the travel narrative in Luke is what happens beginning in Luke verse 51. And this is, this, this is a hinge point, a central turning point in the gospel of Luke where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a very important phrase. Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Now he's turning to Jerusalem and he's not turning back. He's now um, full steam ahead with no distraction, or not no distraction, but with no turning away, he's now deliberately, everything will be flowing towards Jerusalem, and this leads to a problem. Now, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. That is the uh, Net Bible's way of translating he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him. Uh... As they went along, they entered a Samaritan village to make things ready in advance for him, but the villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now we pause, and he's like, he's not stopping there. He's not worshiping where the Samaritans worship, because that was one of the disputes between the Samaritans and the Jews. He was going to Jerusalem, which is not where the Samaritans thought uh, worship should happen. But anyway, so they refused to welcome him because he was continuing on to Jerusalem. Now when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That's so interesting because one of the, one of, look, one of the things apostles will do is they'll have an instinct to commit violence in the pretense of protecting Jesus. This happened with uh, Peter and the sword. Um, in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, this happened right here. Do you want us to call down fire? Look, one of the biblical narratives about apostles is they're going to try to use violence to defend Jesus. And Jesus, in both cases, here and in the case of the sword, rebukes the violence. He says, yuck, you don't need to do this to defend me. You don't need to do this to defend me. You do not need to hurt people to defend the Prince of Love. And that's exactly what they do to LGBTs. They hurt LGBTs in the name of defending Jesus. And Jesus is like, who told you to do that? Right? The, no the November 2015 extermination policy against my people. And yes, I call it an extermination policy or an extermination order. Is a way of allegedly defending Jesus by hurting the gays. I'm like, this is not what Jesus wants. Jesus does not want those muskets. He does not want those swords. He'll say, put your musket away. Elder Holland, you got to put your musket away. Stop using them to defend Jesus. He does not like violence, spiritual violence, physical violence, rhetorical violence done to protect him. He doesn't need that kind of protecting. Anyway, it's been about an hour, so I'm going to... Uh, um, now Luke cl uh, closes chapter 9 with this with a section on the cost of following Jesus, which I've kind of covered already. 
Um, at some point, we'll have to come back and talk about the feeding of the 5,000. At some point, we'll have to talk about Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. Uh, but we get that again, both in, uh, we still have that yet to come in Mark and in uh, Matthew. So we'll, we'll get that. So I just wanted to close by saying, again, I hope everyone has a blessed and happy Women's History Month. Uh, thanks again for your patience listening to me ramble for an hour. I hope uh, people find us on Beyond the Block. You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and you can also search for us on Facebook. So thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a great week. Bye-bye.